So before we uh, waste any more time, we want to make sure we, we, we get this out. Um, send us new intros. Do we have a bunch of intros? I thought we, we had have a bunch, bunch of new ones. But we, we, but we haven't recorded yet, so there's still a window to get some new intros. Did we, did we record intros like six months ago? No. It's been recorded. a year? It's been over a year, dude. Corey. Corey. Remember Corey yeah. came yeah. here, yeah. where we are now, yeah. recorded a bunch of intros. Yeah. You're saying that was a year ago. That was 2014. Oh my, no way. Yes. That's impossible. No. No, it wasn't. It was. It was like six, it was like six eight months ago. No, it was 2014. Oh my, we're doomed. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Remember, he was sitting here. We were trying to, f- we were trying to find a line. 2014. And, uh, it's been about 18 months. I, I, I hate everything. <laughs> you serious? Yeah. There was no effing way. Oh, my goodness. Do I have to ch- double check this? Yes. I want okay. you to okay. I want you to double check because I, I I'm telling you it is not 2014. He was here like six to eight months ago. It was in April of 2014. <laughs> that's, that's, that's like two years ago. Yes, that's, that's not true. <laughs> it was April of 2014. It's like yeah, I know this I is what all, happens. I hate everybody. My daughter is three. <laughs> She's three. Freaking kid. She's three. She talks. She she bosses me around. Does she still love Peppa Pig? Loves Peppa Pig. You know what else she loves is the new animated series from the from the same team that created Peppa Pig. All the same voice. Cuckoo talent. Cow is a cuckoo cow. No, it's not. It's uh, Ben and Holly's uh, Magic Kingdom, which is about Ben, who's an elf, and Holly, who's a fairy, and they're best friends. What kind and of fairy? You mean like a like a fairy, like a little girl with wings? Okay. Okay. <laughs> And uh, they're and they're best friends. And Ben, uh, but but Holly flies. So when Ben wants to fly around with Holly, he he gets on the back of his pet uh, um, ladybug named Gaston, and uh, they fly around. And Gaston's like a dog. And if you ask if you ask my daughter, <laughs> if you ask her, if you say, and what does Gaston say? She goes, because Gaston's like a little dog. Aww. <laughs> So the show's a documentary? Is that what you're saying? It's a sweet animated show. It's hilarious. Aww. It's great. It's on Nick Jr. There's a plug for Nick Jr. So anyway, gods at digigods.com. Send us Vox boxes. Send us e- listener mail. And uh, send us those intros. Send us those intros. we still got a little bit of time. We have to schedule Corey to sit down and, uh, and record them. And uh, which we will get around to, and uh, you know we're uh, we're crossing our T's and dotting our I's and getting our act together for 2016. And um, Mark, I forgot to ask you: Did you have any New Year's resolutions, or do you do not do that? I don't really do that. However, I really have never lost the weight I lost from 2013. Yeah, see. because you know, last week you ate the last of my ice cream. Yeah, which means I have no ice cream and I have no baked goods in the house. Uh huh. Because I realize that I think I can lose weight faster if I cut out sugar, uh-huh. flour, yeah, and something. Okay. <laughs> sugar, flour, white sugar. Flour, okay, and and oh, and dairy, uh, and dairy. Yes, if okay. you cut, if you try to, if you try to minimize those three, I'll, I'll have a lot easier time All losing right. weight. So that's my news resolution: is to lose some weight. Feel like you feel like the Oscar thing has died down. Any have we? Uh... Well, we're still waiting for like the next gigantic celebrity to say, "I'm not going." <laughs> 
Because well, you know what it is? I, 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 think, I think cooler heads are starting to prevail. It's not becoming this whole op-ed thing anymore. And people I, are realizing that the individual academy member is not some horrible racist I liked, who hates black people. It's just not happening. And well, that, and that the hiring needs to change. You need to give yeah. African Americans the, the 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 spots that well, they deserve and, and on Asians, these movies, and Asians in particular. I mean, look, How I about wrote, Jews? I wrote, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, I wrote a thing for the LA Times 15 years ago when uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was on its big rampage to hopefully win an Oscar, and and, and I wrote a thing, and I admit it, I I wrote it basically to to guilt the Academy into or at least that. Uh, that branch in particular, the people who saw the film, into voting for it to give it an Oscar, which worked. I don't know how much I played in that, but it was an L.A. Times piece. It got pretty well profiled. And the point that I made was um, Asian films have been screwed by the Academy for, for decades. You know, you go all the way back. There were the, when the Board of Governors in the, uh, in the 1950s were voting a special award to a foreign fa- film every year, the Board of Governors picked two Japanese movies out of five years. And then they created the the category they created the cat and, and the committee and then once suddenly it's no longer the board of governors voting but it's just you know a bunch of old people who have the time to see all the submitted films then suddenly you go uh, literally a half a century with no asian film actually winning the award a bunch of japanese not films nominated some chinese films nominated but none of them ever won the award kurosawa only won it for a russian film you know, so it's sort of added insult to injury, and then you've got Jennifer Jones and Mickey Rooney playing all these stereotypical Asians in Hollywood movies. In any case, so I mean, I already called attention to that, but let's look at all the Asians that have won uh, Academy Awards as actors. I mean, there's almost none. Well, here's the thing, though. But when you talk about African American actors, you're talking about they're they're reacting to you know decades of racism and and, and, and civil rights era and, and Hattie McDaniel totally and totally different di- totally different dynamic and and I think you know they've done better in the last 10 years than at any other time but again it's like suddenly when you had you know multiple black nominees for about 10 12 years and then two years where there aren't any it, you know, people pay attention to that. I will say this: I loved, uh, I loved what Idris Elba said, where he talked specifically about, uh, you know, he, he used to read scripts that were calling for a character that was specifically black, but then there's this other character that the race isn't named, but he's got a twinkle in his eye, and he said, "Well, I've got a twinkle in my eye." I thought, "Bravo, right on, dude, for sure." Now, yeah. that's like, it, it, okay, Idris Elba, right? Yeah, uh, commanding. Yeah, handsome. Actor, he would he would kick ass as James Bond. If they made he him would. James Bond, I'd be first in line. That guy was awesome. Although, although but, it's really funny, huh. Tim disagrees with us. Really? Yeah. Tim is awesome. like, no, he's like, James Bond's a white guy. He goes, I mean, you know, you find, find, give him, you know, you don't have to change. And Tim, by the way, is African-American. Yeah, he is. Tim, Tim's black. But, he, but, but Tim feels like that, you know, you can create great parts that black actors can play. Um, you don't have to take a character who's white and make him black, you know? And, 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 I, and I get that. Yafit Koto was saying the same thing. So I think that's an interesting divide because I would love to see him play Bond. I, I think we've changed so much about Bond already. Like, Bond used to be a 1960s-era Cold Warrior. Now he's, you know, a post-Cold War guy. We've invented a whole new backstory for him. I mean, honestly, it, it, so many different actors have played him. He's been played by an Australian, a Scotsman, you know, and two Irishmen. I mean, I'm sorry, but no, we don't have to adhere to anything anymore. But my, oh, that's true. But regarding Idris Elba, yeah, I believe He'd that kill it. I he would. I that guy's great. I believe that the reason why he was not nominated was because I'm just telling you, the Academy is not going to reward a TV movie. True. It's a Netflix film. It they is. don't want to open up that door. Well, that's suddenly Netflix films. No, even they if don't. they wind up getting a week in a theater just for the qualifying run, it's basically a Netflix pickup. 
and that's it. They don't want to. Re- they don't want to open that door. And and it also there was a controversy with that film about collapsing windows that Netflix was going to put it on uh, Netflix very quickly after it had a theatrical release. There were there were a lot of issues, and Netflix also overpaid for that film. They paid like twelve million dollars. And everybody else was really mad about that because they, they kind of felt like, okay, now, now you're, you're totally blowing out the game. We go to these festivals and, uh, you know, you have a movie that, where the minimum guarantee is, is going to be in the ballpark of three, four, maybe $5 million tops. And everybody's kind of bidding and, you know, you're waiting to see where we're going to settle. And then suddenly Netflix walks in with their big fat wallet and says, we'll pay twelve. You know, that's like, that's like if you're bidding on a house that's only worth, you know, like $200,000 and people are all kind of bidding in the, you know, the like the 150, 160, 170 range. Everybody's hoping they can get it for under two. And then Netflix walks in and says, we'll pay $3 million. Well, and that, well, that th- pisses people off because now they're, they're, they're pushing the rate of everything out of the realm of anybody's possibility. Now all these other little movies are going to walk into film markets thinking, hey, maybe we can get Netflix to pay nine times the, uh, the amount for the film. And then what's going to happen is, hopefully not, but what might happen is they overpay for stuff. They don't do well. I mean, Netflix is, is a private company. I mean, they, they keep their numbers private. Yeah. You don't really know how many people necessarily watch that film on Netflix. Nope. But let's say it didn't do well. They may, be on, they may go, you know what, next year, I'm not going to spend $12 million on a movie next year. Yeah. Because uh, Beast didn't do well. True. And then, and then, and then just when you thought that, that market was inflating, it's going to come right back down. True. Anyway. But you know what, Ice Cube. Ice Cube was very uh, uh, sanguine about the whole thing too. Uh, they asked him. Was, he said, "Look, man. I mean, you know, we uh, we made the movie for a little bit of money, and it made a lot of money, and people loved it, and it won some awards, and that's fine. You know, not not getting nominated for best picture. He goes, that's like you know, it's like being upset that your birthday cake doesn't have enough frosting on it. It's like just be happy with you know." You go to the you go to the track. You get a ticket. Your horse comes in, and great. If not, then you tear up the ticket and you go home. And, and I thought there's there's a guy who's like totally got the right perspective on all this. Or he, or he's pretending to have the right perspective. Nah. Who knows in the cold hard light of day what he thinks? Because you know what, the only nomination that film got was for, was for a bunch of white guys. Yeah, but you know what? It. But you know what? Ride along is it, it made a ton of money, and Ride Along Two is making a ton of money. He's happy. Well, that's I mean he yeah. he has to he has to be magnanimous because he's a producer. True. He is in the business. You know, yes. I mean, he's a successful yes. producer, so yeah, he can't yeah. be suddenly uh, alienating financiers, actors, exactly. blind people by saying, you know, f the Oscars. Exactly. So he's smart, you know. All right, let's uh, let's get into Blu-rays and DVDs and stuff. I, I got some cult films here. Uh, Arrow releasing Arrow Video is a, uh, a cult distributor that uh, releases through music video distributors, MVD. And uh, the uh, we got a couple here from the Arrow line. They've been getting a really, lot of really cool stuff out there. Just uh, arch cult stuff that has been on the we want this out there list for the longest time, and they're just pumping them out there right now. Uh, Louise Lasser shows up in Blood Rage. Uh, Blood Rage is a just relentless, kind of cheesy, but thoroughly enjoyable uh, 1983 slasher film right from the middle of the, the perfect slasher era. Apparently it didn't get released until 1987. I didn't see it until they sent us this thing. Never even heard of it until they sent us this thing. But you know what? It's right from that era. It totally belongs there. It's a perfectly good uh, slasher film from the middle of that era. Very, very low budget, which makes it even better. And uh, this is the uh, this is its Blu-ray debut. So welcome to Blu-ray Blood Rage. Uh, Louise Lasser uh, is in it along with uh, you know a bunch of people that you never heard of, and that's perfectly fine. Um, it's got some um, some interesting extras. 
Blu-ray and DVD. It's got a second Blu-ray on here, which has uh, Nightmare at Shadow Woods, which is the same film, um, but re-edited for 1987 theatrical release with additional footage that was not in the original uh, version. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of a nice little chunk of slasher film history with Blood Rage. And then the other Arrow release this week is Requiescent, uh, directed by Carlo Lazzani. This is a spaghetti western, a very unusual spaghetti western from uh, 1967, uh, with a totally bizarre cast. I mean, it was, it was it, this is just the strangest uh, movie. This, is, um, this has been out of print, actually, for quite a while. And it's also been known under the title Kill and Pray, uh, with some some releases. Anyway, it was co-written by Pasolini, Pier Paolo Pasolini, the late Italian uh, neorealist director who made the infamous Salo, who also shows up in the movie, uh, playing Don Juan. And uh, essentially it's about a kid who's, uh, whose family is slaughtered and he's raised uh, by a preacher to, you know, be a nonviolent kid, but years later... He, you know, is given the opportunity to get revenge for his family's death, and uh, they drags him back into the life. It's a, you know, it's one of those, uh, you know, redemp- forgiveness and redemption, and uh, very, very Catholic guilt movies that wind up every so once in a while being uh, imposed on the Western genre, especially in spaghetti westerns. In any case, uh, Carlo Lozani, not a director that I'm terribly familiar with, but very competent work here. Uh, also stars uh, Mark Damon in the cast. Uh, Mark Damon, who shows up in a lot of B-movies from the 60s and would go on to uh, establish a really B-movie, uh, kind of a mega-house B-movie production company, Mark Damon Worldwide, which if you go to the American film market, it, it's just like there's Mark Damon stuff everywhere. It's all over the place. No relation to Matt. No relation to Matt. None whatsoever. But anyway, uh, Requiescent, uh, which has a ton of special features in here. It's a beautiful restoration of the film right from the camera negative, 2K uh, transfer here. And uh, there's a thing on here called Remembering Requiescent, which is a new interview with Lou Castell, one of the stars of the film. And uh, an archival interview with Carlo Lazzani, which is very interesting. So, And, of course, a great booklet. So two really cool things from, uh, from Arrow. And then uh, a few other cult films. We'll get through real quickly. We've got uh, the uh, Trauma release, the last horror film, otherwise known as Fanatic, which has, uh, strangely enough, some Depeche Mode music in it, but it's really only interesting because Carolyn Monroe is in it. Carolyn Monroe, a, uh, an 80s-era science fiction kind of Barbarella-type star from movies like uh, Star Crash, and I, I just adore Carolyn Monroe, and uh, any movie from the 80s that, she, that she's in, I will tolerate on some level. In any case, this thing is, uh, this is another slash and gore movie. Uh, funny intro by Lloyd Kaufman, who's always just priceless. Uh, there's an audio commentary and a few other little uh, behind-the-scenes things. It's a trauma film. What do you want? And uh, then we got a double feature from uh, the Scream Factory line of uh, Shout Factory. This is The House Where Evil Dwells, along with Ghost Warrior. Uh, neither of these are particularly great in and of themselves, but as a cheesy double feature that you want to throw in the background during a party, you could do worse. Uh, both of these films are from the, uh, the 1980s, and they have the whole 1980s B-movie sheen to them. Um, I, I, you know, essentially they're, they're samurai films. They're not great samurai films by any means. You'd have to go to the 60s and the 70s for the really, really good stuff. But Ghost Warrior, which was also known under the title Sword Kill, is, is not terrible. Um, it's kind of a crazy fantasy where uh, a couple of skiers find like an ancient samurai uh, suspended in ice 
and uh, then he winds up being brought back to life through this like weird Frankenstein process, and uh, he becomes kind of like the samurai version of Captain America in some weird, freaky way. By the way, what do you think about uh, the new Captain America movie with a you know get special guest star Iron Man? How's that look to you? Uh, you know, I'm starting to wonder if I'm getting sick of these movies. <laughs> it's, it might be happening. Although the second Captain America film was legitimately, by any measure, a good movie. It was a very good movie. It was. Yeah. So I'm a little okay. And the, the thing with the Civil War thing is that I, I, my hope is, and I think the Russo brothers who have who have who have proven themselves to be very smart, mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to shy away from all the uncomfortable thematic implications of what the Civil War comic was really about. Mm-hmm. So I think that there might be something more there than just a bunch of superheroes fighting. That's the Let's hope. hope. Let's hope. Another double feature, uh, Axe, along with Kidnapped Coed. These are films from Frederick R. Friedel, uh, a, a 1970s-era uh, schlockmeister. Kind of continuing the uh, the low budget slasher and violence and gore and roughy traditions of the 1960s, um, uh, you know they're 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 not very good, but they they have that weird culty uh, sheen to them, and uh, you know a few cool extras. So I mean, if you're if you're a fan of the era of the genre, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Uh, a couple that are a little bit more recent, Deathgasm. Honestly, I don't need to tell you anything other than the title. If if a movie's called Deathgasm and you're interested in seeing it on Blu-ray, then you're going to see it. If you're Sold. Not, if, if the title doesn't appeal to you, you're not going to like it. There's really nothing else that needs to be said. Just Deathgasm. It's a, the title sells it. Uh, condemned. Death is the only escape. Uh, this get, this is from the, the Saw vein of movies, um, which continues to be, you know, some of the torture porn is, um, I guess, compelling from a metaphorical, allegorical standpoint. You can sort of excuse it, and some of it is just relentlessly exploitative and amateurish. Uh, this kind of sits somewhere between the two. Um, yeah, there, there's always, you know, there's always like people on drugs in these things. It, they, they, that's part of the way that they try to give you a cautionary tale. You know, don't do drugs because you you might wind up being a villain in one of these movies. Uh, but anyway, there's a little bit of a zombie thing going on, a little bit of the slasher and gore and torture porn thing going on, and uh, it, it just it's it's otherwise just a way to do a, a lot of gore effects in a very very narrow environment. The Phantom from Ten Thousand Leagues is on Blu-ray. Uh, this is pretty cool. This is a 1955 film from the. Uh, this is out from uh, Kino Lorber. Uh, thoroughly enjoyable. Very much. We, we have other Kino Lorber stuff that we're certainly going to be talking about. But this is the one that belongs in the in the cult vein. Uh, this was kind of the one of the original um, Man Against Monster movies, right from that early uh, the early decade of the uh, the, the post World War II atomic scare stuff. And uh, it was a huge, huge hit. Uh, people went to this by the droves. It was a big drive-in movie. And there's an audio commentary here from Richard Harlan Smith, a uh, film historian, as well as some um, trailers from hell with Joe Dante, who always loves to be a part of this world. And um, there it is, The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. It's not going to blow you away with its special effects, but it's, uh, it's worth checking out. And then uh, Severin, who always does some interesting uh, uh, culty stuff. Christopher Lee's Count Dracula from 1970. Uh, certainly not one of the all-time legendary Dracula movies, but it's worth checking out. It's got Klaus Kinski in it. What do you want? Klaus Kinski and, Peter and Christopher Lee. It's a uh, match made in hell, I guess. Uh, the, uh, probably the best film ever directed by Jess Franco. 
Jess Franco mostly did just really schlocky nudie stuff and uh, movies about orgies and uh, you know really really kind of bad swinger movies. But this one actually is like a real movie. Jess Franco actually made a real movie with a real cast for a change. Also uh, Herbert Lom and uh, a few other noteworthy actors of the era show up. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. Uh, and Bruno Mattei, who edited it, also would go on to be uh, something of a significant director from the era. And uh, then the last few um, include the double feature The Dungeon Master and Eliminators. This is another Scream Factory, Shout Factory double feature from the, uh, of uh, memorable cult films from the 1980s. Uh, did you ever see The Dungeon Master? Yes, I did back in like, the day. It was like like the same era, like Troll, and you know a lot of those things. It kind of it kind of came from that same moment, that same supernatural moment that grew out of the slasher film. Anyway, I, I actually kind of enjoyed the Dungeon Master. I was like, that's surprisingly good for a schlocky, low budget film. And uh, you know, Eliminators is another one of those things that's kind of kind of grew out of the uh, the, the the whole Mad Max and uh, Road Warrior thing. Kind of, you know, with a little bit of a RoboCop thrown in for good measure. Not bad at all. Um, cheesy, but kind of enjoyable in a, in a schlocky, nostalgic way. Uh, Zombie High uh, with the future Oscar nominee Virginia Madsen. It's basically about Zombie High. I mean, I don't know what you want. That's what it is. It's like zombies in high school. You bitter, bitter man. Uh, women's Prison Massacre. This is a women's prison film with uh, some massacre stuff thrown on it. Uh, what do you want? There's no other way to describe this thing. That's exactly what it is. Uh, it's you know, an Italian slasher film from the era taking the old Corman women's prison thing and throwing some giallo on top of it. And then lastly, one that I actually really like, despite the fact that it is a totally exploitative piece of trash, is Blood and Lace. Uh, this is a Blu-ray DVD combo set. This is from 1971. Here's the thing about Blood and Lace. Blood and Lace is one of the few that actually does have something to say, despite the fact that it is just relentlessly uh, brutal and and uh, ex- exploitative. It's got some, you know, some interesting things about it. Gloria Graham shows up in this, you know, as they all did, like uh, Shelley Winters when their when their careers are going away. They, they they do that. You know who else is in this? Vic Tabak. And Melody Patterson, Vic Tabak, piece of the action. I just watched that yesterday. Did you know that? I threw it on. Did I you really? Just, yeah, I, was, I, was, I had Netflix, and I was like, you know what? I want to watch an episode of Star Trek. What does Netflix have? And I was going through, hey, look, season one, season two. What's in season two? Season two is where they all play dress up through the whole season. Because, you know, season two has like, uh, like you know, uh, the, the, where the, the Nazi one all where they dress as Nazis. All, every, pretty much every episode where they play dress up, it's all from season two. Because, uh, like, the Paramount wardrobe department said, what do we do with this stuff? Do we, do we mothball it? And then somebody over at Desilu said, nah, let's hang on to it. We'll, we'll throw some Star Trek episodes into the wardrobe department, and we'll dress you in togas and Nazi outfits and whatever we got. So they, so the Paramount wardrobe department pretty much dictated all of season two. So I threw on a piece of the action, Krakow. And then at the end, Ox uh, Mix. And then at the end, uh, 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 Doctor McCoy leaves the phaser down on the planet. Honestly, the whole someday they're gonna want a piece of our action. That was the music at the end. They're gonna want a piece of our action. Freeze frame. It's the best. Big Dayback. He played. He played Krakow. That was a fun the one. ox mix. It's, well, you know what? I'm 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 going to start a production company. I'm going to call it Fizzbin Productions. Fizz, the whole Fizzbin bit, except on Tuesday. Except on Tuesday. Those guys are the dumbest gangsters ever. They've yeah, had a hundred years to learn about Chicago gangsters from the '30s. They, they they don't even get it close to being right. It's just horrible. And that kid who's like, "Oh, you'll know what to do." 
Ow, daddy. Ow, daddy, daddy. <laughs> Star Trek sucked. It really did. It just sucked in so many ways. <laughs> the, whole but thing was, the whole thing was shot on the Paramount back lot. You just look at the, those brown stones that are made out of paper mache. It's the best. I love that episode. Hysterical. <laughs> I, I remember, obviously, as a Star Trek fan, I, you know, I revered City on the Edge of Forever. Oh, it's the best one, City on the Edge of Forever. And I, I remember my father, I finally made my father see it. Yeah. And he, he goes, I just watched City on the Edge of Forever. He goes, it's so bad. You know what? When Because my father, who was, who, you know, was an acting professor, teacher, I mean, he taught major stars, Alan Ladd and, you know, all, all, tons of them. And I remember when I was a kid, I loved Star Trek, and my father would just sit there. And he just grit his teeth every single time William Shatner said anything. And he would just cringe. And he, and he wouldn't say anything, he's, but I could tell. I was like, why don't you like Shatner? What, he's the best. Captain Kirk, what's wrong? And, of course, you know, then you grow up and you're like, oh, my gosh. He was so right. Like, I get it. I understand now. Well, from a technical standpoint, Shatner may not have been what an acting no. teacher would want to see. No, no. But still, you can't. He's just Shatner. He's the Shatner. Well, he just put the shat on everything. He really he did. did. He, just, he, he laid it on. Is there a game called Fizzbin? Uh, Spock says, uh, Captain, I'm very familiar with the practice, but I've never heard. No, Kirk waves him off. No, no, Fizzbin, it's a man's game. Uh, it's probably too complicated for you. I can do anything you want, Kirk. I can learn any game you want. Yeah, a little reverse psychology there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> anyway. All right, all right. Wonder Years uh, Season 4. Speaking of Star Trek, let's do some TV. Uh, Wonder Years Season 4, uh, this might be the one you want to get because. Um, this DVD set, this season, includes a lot of the songs that were featured in the original broadcasts, which, of course, as you know, as Wade told you every week for two years, mm. was a big deal when it came to China Beach. Yep. Right? Here you have Beach Boys, Marvin Gaye, Jimi Hendrix. Incredible to me that they were able to clear all that stuff finally. So I mean, this is such an ordeal. So this season four is uh, definitely worth it. Otherwise, it's the same as all the other seasons of The Wonder Years, which I, I never a show I never really got. Uh, final season of Hill Street Blues, finally, out on DVD, not Blu-ray. This one, you know, the show felt a little bit like it was kind of uh, moving out. You know, it, it did not get nominated for a, a Best Drama Emmy, which was a bit kind of like writing on the wall. The, uh, you know, Daniel J. Trevante was still there and Betty Thomas was still there. But still, it felt like they were introducing some new characters to put some new blood in it. And it just felt like, yeah, uh, you guys are trying too hard. I I think it's over. Uh, Duck Dynasty Wedding Special is great. It's all about about the Duck Dynasty guys actually attending and giving their blessing to a gay wedding. Oh, it's it's, it's not about that? (laughs) I wasn't even going to laugh at that. That's something else? I wasn't going to ruin the joke. It's, anyway, uh, this is that'd be uh, great if it were, wouldn't it? That would be just that, that it'd break people's minds. <laughs> it'll break their minds. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is all about John Luke getting uh, married to uh, Mary Kate, and uh, I'm really glad these Duck Dynasty guys. I, I, basically, I it's don't over. Don't know their names. It's basically over. It is, isn't it? Uh, Mr. Robot is out on uh, Blu-ray now. Mr. Robot is a show that I swear this thing came out of nowhere, and I have never met anybody who has ever who has said anything other than. It's this amazing. is the greatest show I've ever seen in my yeah. entire life. I mean, people went absolutely ape-s for this show. It's, it's, it, it's kind of a, fen- a fascinating phenomenon. It's, it's, it's rare that shows hit it so big without already being on the radar for, for some period of time. This is one of those. It's like, because I, with so many shows on TV, I don't know. How, you, how does something like this even get discovered? I don't know. But you know what? U- USA, yeah. God love yeah. them. You know, that's a good, it's, it's a good thing. And the thing is, it has Christian Slater in it. I know. And that's like... Lame. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, know. Christian Slater isn't like you know some new it yeah. kid. Like you know, like 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 you know, people love that uh, orphan black as it has Tatiana Maslany, yeah. and then she becomes kind of kind of the it person of the day. Yeah. This is like 
Christian Slater. I know. From like Heather's in 1989. But you know what? Great show. People loved it. Season one. Just won some, didn't it win a Golden Globe or two or something? I never pay attention to the Golden Globe TV things, but I think it did. Uh, You know what? It's, yeah. Well, anyway. Little House in the Prairie. Good show. show. Little House in the Prairie season eight, Wade. Yeah. I know what you're saying to yourself. You're saying there was eight seasons this crap? Uh, more than that, wasn't there? More, more than there that, more? and their little movies and the whole nine yards. Yeah, it, it, just, it seemed to go on forever for the better part of my, uh, like half my life, it seemed. It did. It, it, it's funny because on, on the cover of the Blue uh, the DVD, it says, Better Picture, Better Sound. Okay. Restored to broadcast length. Now, of course, it's Better Picture, Better Sound because now you're starting to get into, like, you know, the 80s now. So at least yeah. you're not. getting some more, at least a little more modern broadcast standards yeah. in terms of shooting and whatnot. What I'm sure they probably. Maybe found themselves with better source using, material. We're not using wire recorders for the sound no, anymore. This is not kinescope. We're not okay. doing that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so this is uh, season eight. No reason to get this unless you're a uh, unless you're a devotee of the other um, of the other seasons. Uh, yeah. So just letting you know it's out there. Also, Party of Five. Now, Party of Five. Um, this thing. This thing had its moment. This thing was on Fox for like six seasons. And it and it and it birthed a, a number of actors who went on to do rather substantial work. Well, Matthew Fox was on Lost. Nev mm-hmm. Campbell did the Scream films. Jennifer mm-hmm. Love Hewitt uh, uh, spent her time not being yeah. not being married to me. Yeah, very very uh, sad, I have to say. So uh, yeah, so this thing, you know what? It was set in San Francisco. It was a bunch of siblings, and uh, they become orphans, and they gotta, you know, they gotta figure out how to take care of themselves. And uh, yeah, this thing had a real moment. I gotta say, it was a good. La- Lacey Chabert. Lacey Chabert was on the show too. Lacey yeah. Chabert, who uh, wait, as you know, and probably don't care, Lacey Chabert was the original uh, Meg Griffin. For uh, part of season one of Family Guy, and then she wound up leaving the show because she that. wanted more money. Really? And then they wound up hiring uh, Mila Kunis. No kidding. And now Mila Kunis is incredibly wealthy because she's <laughs> that show's been on for like twelve seasons, and Lacey Chabert is on for like you know one one episode. And there you go. Wah, wah. Well, we got a bunch of others from the uh, the Kino Lorber Studio Classics line. Some amazing stuff here. First off, the knack and how to get it. Long, long. I love this movie. Overdue. It's oh, fun. My gosh. This is one of the best movies uh, that Richard Lester ever made. Uh, This is from 1965, a a legendary classic from the... We can technically say it's from the kitchen sink realism slash angry young men period, but it is it is uh, it, it's more than that. But still, it's part of that sort of British new wave from the '60s that really kind of rewrote the rules for uh, for British films going forward. And uh, it's just it's stylistically really daring. It's got all that funky Lester stuff that he did in the Beatles films and everything else. And eventually, kind of, you know, segued a little bit into the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers. Um, it's just wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful, and it showcases the the comedy talents of Michael Crawford better than anything else he's ever done. Rita Tushingham, who was sort of like the British it girl for the era, has never been more wonderful. And it's just, it's really just a, a sexy romp through, you know, uh, this guy's girl craziness, and uh, you get the whole sensibility of that uh, that period uh, that that uh, that that london of the 60s that sort of g- gets made fun of a lot in like the uh, austin powers films but it's just gorgeous spectacular black and white photography and one of the most uh, original scores john barry ever wrote really a great score uh, mr trousers mr tight trousers mr tight tight trousers i used to show this to my uh, my class as well and uh 
it, it always got like this amazing reaction. People didn't know what to make for, make of it, which is kind of neat when you have modern audiences that you think have seen everything, especially really jaded students, and they think they're so hip and they're so cool and they're so, you know, in, on top of everything. And you show them something like the knack, and they just don't even know how to process it. You know what's funny is that in the same vein, I went and sp- I was I was the guest speaker at our friend Ray Green's um, LMU film class, and I got there a little bit early, and the previous class was still going, and the previous class the. Um, the professor was wrapping up a showing for the students of All About Eve. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, what are these kids going to think about something so melodramatic? There is no way they're going to like All About Eve. Nope. And I, and I, I, was, I sort of walked outside and was watching the, 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 uh, the students as they, as they left the theater. And, you know, I, I only saw a couple of students. I didn't see all of them because there's various ways to exit the theater. But uh, the ones that I saw, they were not happy. They were like scoffing. Really? It's all about Eve is so melodramatic. I mean, it's melodramatic for the oh, time. Now it. imagine 2016. Oh, I love that. I can quote that movie until the end of time. Doesn't your wife love that movie? Oh, she totally, absolutely adores it. <laughs> it's going to be a bumpy ride. You're too short for that gesture. I love all that stuff. George <laughs> Sanders is the best. Uh, anyway, uh, and, and, you know, seriously, I mean, it's just, I love that movie. Ann Baxter. And you know, the, the, the funny thing about that movie, um, as melodramatic as Ann Baxter is, she's even more melodramatic in uh, The Ten Commandments a few years later. Oh, Moses, Moses. <laughs> and, the, and the thing I love, the great connective tissue, is that remember when they did the, did the TV movie for uh, Hotel with, uh, with James Brolin? Yes. Well, you know who the big matron of the hotel was in the original TV movie was Betty Davis. And when they turned it into a series, do you know who replaced Betty Davis? Carrot Top. Ann Baxter. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, wow, that is just so, that's so meta. <laughs> that's just so I'm sure great. they knew that. Of course they did. Anyway, uh, also from Richard Lester and uh, Michael Crawford is How I Won the War. That's also on Blu-ray from Kino Lord. John Lennon's in this. John Lennon is the star, basically. Michael Crawford, kind of the, the second star in this. Anyway, this is an anti-war satire, really an unusual movie. Uh, a lot of people really hate this film. Beautifully shot. David Watkin, who'd go on to do Chariots of Fire and many other fine films, uh, does, shoots a, the hell out of this thing. But um, the it just, it's it's really this is this is Lester kind of taking his style a little bit off the beaten path, and it's kind of inaccessible. I like the film. I think it's interesting from a uh, the standpoint of Richard Lester's overall career, but uh, it's really, really tweaked and very 60s. So, you know, uh, I, there's no reason not to pick this up along with The Knack. It just gives you a really interesting sense of where Richard Lester's style from the era, you know, works and where it didn't work so much. Uh, double feature from Shot Factory, uh, two Bo Derek films, Bolero and Ghosts Can't Do It. Uh, you know what? Neither of these is very good. Uh, but there, Bolero has a weird kind of cult feel because it came right after uh, right after Tarzan, and Tarzan, of course, came right after Ten. And this is when she was pretty much making films only for her her husband, John Derrick, who was just directing basically softcore movies with. You know, his his latest look-alike wife, John Derrick, of course, previously had been married to Linda Evans and to, uh, uh, what's her name, the other one from the Bond film. Uh, uh, the uh, Star Wars. No. Uh, see, I'm totally drawing a blank. Anyway, all three of them looked alike. Uh, and uh, the, the, the my father had taught John Derrick, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit. John Derrick, another veteran of the Ten Commandments, played Joshua in the Ten Commandments, and uh, I also remember my father cringing at his performance in that movie, see, as if see, he had forgotten everything that he, were, he was taught. See, Joshua sounds like a... Ursula good... Andress. That's, that's the it. other wife. That's it. She was yeah. hot. 
See, Joshua sounds like a biblical name. Yeah. Josh, not so much. Not so much, no. You just take those two letters off, and somehow it just becomes like a cool surfer, skateboarder kid name. Joshua, biblical. Josh, not so much. Not so much. Anyway. Thank uh, you, everyone. Ghosts Can't Do It from 1990 with Anthony Quinn is really not very good. Um, it's got a whole supernatural element to it, and, and Bo Derek ultimately really can't act very well. And by 1990, that, that well had pretty much run dry. And then the last one on the Kino Lorber Classics front uh, is a Robert Shaw, Malcolm McDowell film called Figures in a Landscape from 1970. Um, a, uh, a, a war film that uh, is pretty standard for the period, um, but it's, you know, um, it's not anything amazing. It's just kind of a showcase for a couple of, for those two actors in particular. Um, what's always interesting is to see who directs a lot of these things by the 1970s, and this is directed by the most unlikely director for this, uh, for this film, which is Joseph Losey, uh, an, an American director who basically made his career directing great British films like The, uh, the Servant. And uh, it's really kind of, uh, an, an, it, it wants to be an allegory. Essentially, the uh, Robert Shaw and um, Malcolm McDowell are fugitives in some kind of imaginary country, torn by some kind of imaginary conflict. And uh, it feels a little bit like uh, like Fear and Desire on the one hand, a little bit like The Prisoner on, on the other. It's, it, it, it's kind of in that same vein, which was, a, I guess, a bit of a thing in the 1970s. Um, it feels a little bit... Also, you know what? There's like a helicopter uh, uh, showdowns thing, and it, makes, it feels a little bit like the truck in, uh, in the Spielberg film. Um, Duel. Duel. Thank you. So it, it's got a little... It feels like all that stuff, and it's not really very Joseph Losey-like, uh, but uh, it, it, it's, it, it's, an, it's an oddity. It's a curiosity, and it's, uh, it's worth checking out. I can't, I can't say that I really liked it all that much, but it's, uh, it's kind of compelling in a strange way, and the photography is lovely, I have to say. It's, it's really very nicely shot. So uh, there it is. That's uh, Figures in a Landscape. It's a curiosity. Away from uh, 1952, we have uh, one of the great kind of forgotten film noirs, Kansas City Confidential. This starred uh, John Payne, who, by the way, guy was like Juilliard-trained uh, singer, so the guy was like the real deal, although he's not uh, necessarily singing here. Uh, Payne is a, he plays an ex-con, and he's a delivery man, and he is framed for a million-dollar uh, armored car robbery. That was all set up by this, uh, by this ex-cop, played by Preston uh, Forrester. This uh, movie is uh, mainly remembered because it supposedly inspired Quentin Tarantino uh, to write Reservoir Dogs. Now, no one really knows if that's true or not. No one's actually read a, read a quote from so Tarantino many saying that. so many movies that inspired him. Because you can say that about Pelham 1, 2, 3. He's also cited the... Well, last Ringo week we talked about Lady Snowbird. And Lady Snowbird. Well, I mean, but specific to Reservoir Dogs, you know, there, there's a huge chunk of that that's also ripped off straight from the end of uh, Ringo Lamb's City on Fire. So, I mean, it's, you know, he borrows from everything and just kind of makes a mishmash of it. But still, it's a, it's a good film, and it's very noirish, and all the noir cliches, and even though they're all cliched, all hard-boiled and, 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 and harsh lighting and, and whatnot, it works here. Kansas City Confidential, I think this movie needs to be resurrected from the uh, forgotten realms of noir history. Uh, good stuff. Better stuff, ladies and gentlemen, is the hilarious... Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I like this. Oh, it's funny. Tom Stoppard, man. It's Tom Stoppard. This Lovely. is, it's it's Tim Roth and Gary Oldman. Now this movie's old, man. You know, it's from 1990. I think it's 25 oh years old. Gosh, so it's like it's like it's like Gary Oldman and Tim Roth 
25 years ago. They played Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, two minor characters from Hamlet, who, who are resurrected to be like the main characters of this movie. And part of Stoppard's thing is, is that there are these two, there are these two main characters, these two minor characters who are just inflated into the star of the, it was a play originally, then it became a movie. And it's got this hilarious, absurdist bent. I mean, there's so many funny lines, so many crazy, absurdist, like waiting for Godot, Samuel Beckett type lines in this thing. You know, it's like, uh, there's one I remember, it's like, um, um, it's like, a man talking sense to himself is no matter than a man talking nonsense not to himself. He's stark raving sane. Cool. Just crazy lines like that that, like, you're like, what does that mean? And you it's just, awesome. It's just, it's just really funny. It's Stoppard just being Stoppardy. Let me tell you something. Pirates can happen to anyone. It's the best. <laughs> the best. I think this movie's just terrific. It's, really, and you know it's what? really underrated. It's super underrated. 25th anniversary. There's interviews with Gary Oldman, Tim Roth, and Richard Dreyfuss in this thing. He's also in the film. And, uh, yeah, Tom Stoppard wrote it and directed it. He also obviously wrote the play. So uh, I think this thing will be a – I think you're uh, – by the way, this, this, this thing won the Golden Lion at uh, the Venice Film Festival that year. So this is not just some little movie. No. So I would uh, highly recommend checking out the absurdist, crazy comedy, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Sweet. Uh, and then we've got a, uh, a few DVDs here from Warner Brothers and uh, 20th Century Fox. The Warner Archive titles, Two Guys from Texas – and two guys from Milwaukee, uh, pretty great. Dennis Morgan and Jack Carson aren't really known anymore, uh, but they did they did some shtick back in the day, and uh, it, it's it's okay. It's uh, you know it's kind of a it's kind of a it's sort of a weird bygone bit that they did, um, but uh, you know they were a good team, and there's some uh, some kind of compelling stuff to most of them. They they I, I guess you could say they were in a way kind of. Um, a second-tier Hope and Crosby of sorts. Obviously never really uh, ascended to great fame, uh, but there are some very, very good people involved in kind of supporting their effort here, uh, especially in uh, Two Guys from Milwaukee, which is a script that was uh, co-written by Izzy Diamond, I.A.L. Diamond, the, you know, Billy Wilder's uh, famous uh, 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 collaborator, who uh, also collaborated on... um, on uh, two guys from Texas, but you really, really see his uh, his influence here because he was the rewriter here, and uh, the original screenplay by Charles Hoffman uh, had a good had a good thing to it, like a good structure. But Diamond came in and clearly just kind of polished this thing up and uh, and gave it all kinds of uh, really, really great uh, ins and outs. Um, some wonderful supporting performances. It's, uh, you know, as, a, as far as, you know, comedies from the era goes, it's not one of the best, but it's certainly uh, memorable. 1946 um, deserves to be watched. If you're, if you're a fan of the era, you'll definitely, definitely enjoy this. It's got all kinds of kind of, you know, great little farcical situations and good stuff. Two Guys from Texas, a little bit less engaging. Uh, I think partly because it's in color, uh, it just feels... It just doesn't have the same feel. Once a lot of these films become color, they kind of lose something. You don't get quite carried away to the same degree. And it's also a western, so it's uh, it doesn't doesn't quite uh, doesn't quite work. Uh, and it also gets uh, there's a little bit of there's some kind of weird crossover stuff in here. Like there's a there's even a Bugs Bunny animated dream sequence here. You know that they use to kind of do, do a little cross promotion from Warner Brothers. It felt a little odd. So I mean, it kind of pushes a little too far in Two Guys from Texas. But still, an interesting. Interesting comedy duo, uh, Dennis Morgan and Jack Carson, definitely worth checking out. 
And the last Warner Archive title here is Anne of Green Gables uh, with Anne Shirley. The, uh, this is the original RKO radio uh, variation or interpretation of this, which I think this is technically the first film. Was there a silent film, Anne of Green Gables? I want to say there was a silent take on this I, at a certain point. I, I do not know. You're not an angry Anne of Green Gables fan, huh? Not in any way, shape, or form. Okay, 1934. Uh, I mean, the, the recent television version of this is the one that most people know. But you know what? Anne Shirley does a really, really wonderful job. Uh, and uh, it's it, 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 it just ha- captures the whole feel of the book in a wonderful, wonderful way. It's very nostalgic, carries you away. Um, it was, a, you know, the, the heyday of RKO. This is just uh, shortly after uh, uh, Citizen Kane. So this is... You know, RKO really in their studio heyday. And it's kind of sad that RKO doesn't really exist anymore. That's a studio I – you look at the stuff they made, I would love for them to still be around. It's like Hammer Studios. You know how they resurrected Hammer Studios like five yeah. years ago? Yeah, they resurrected it with Matt's film. Yeah, uh, let, let, let the, the right one in. Let the right one, or let me let, – let, let, let me in. Let me in, yeah. And then uh, where'd that go? Yeah, it didn't go anywhere no. because because then they fired you know what's his face and what's his bucket the two the two the two guys what's his face and what's his bucket yeah uh, anyway and then real quickly some uh, 20th Century Fox DVD R's they have re released Dangerous Beauty uh, which was previously out on DVD this is a great film uh, directed by Marshall Herskovitz the other part of Thirty uh, Something Ed Zwick went on to have a huge huge career as a director Marshall Herskovitz not so much even though he's made two films that I think are better than everything that Be- that Edswick has ever made. He made Jack the Bear, which is not on on Blu-ray, and it makes me sick with Danny DeVito. Jack which the I think Bear, an amazing movie. That's that, not the one. That, what, what, Danny DeVito as as the as the single father and the kid. It's it's an amazing film. It what is was the amazing. Francis Ford Coppola one that was with Robin Williams? That was like. Jack. That's just just Jack. Jack. Yeah. No, Jack the Bear with Danny DeVito as a a single father. It's an amazing movie. It is so good. It's It's called Jack the Bear Way. No one's going to, it's just stupid. I know. And anyway, he went on to do Dangerous Beauty, which has, which was produced by uh, Arnon Milchan and Ed Zwick, of course, uh, but which features a, and actually it's based on a a true story, uh, to be honest, but uh, it's just, it's it's absolutely wonderful. Features Catherine McCormack and Rufus Sewell in amazing performances. This thing should have uh, gotten heaps of Oscar nominations. It didn't. I don't know why. Uh, but Janine Dominey wrote uh, an amazing script here and uh, should have gotten an Oscar nomination as well. Anyway, I mean, it's, a, it's basically a period film about uh, a very famous 16th century courtesan who, uh, you know, becomes like kind of a feminist icon in her era. I mean, Catherine McCormick kills it in this film. And then uh, less interesting are a bunch of uh, old Fox programmers. Uh, Bad Boy. Uh, by Vina Del Mar, starring James Dunn. Uh, let me just name these off for you real quickly. Four Men and a Prayer, which has, you know, uh, it's okay. It's got George Sanders and David Niven in it, which is, you know, kind of uh, boosts the thing a little bit. It's a, you know, a, a British story set during the Raj in India. It's okay. Uh, it happened in Flatbush, which was uh, directed by Ray McCary. Uh, the only thing that makes this interesting is that it's got some uh, an interesting cast of kind of second-tier people, including William Frawley, future um, of uh, Fred Mertz on the uh, I Love Lucy show. Uh, the Peace Killers from 1971, a uh, little bit of a kind of a, a, a B-movie, uh, hippie commune thing, you know, from the late biker era. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of not helter-skelter, but clearly trying to capitalize on all of that stuff. Um, Avalanche from 1967, which is a uh, one of those late 60s uh, human drama things all about a bunch of people who uh, uh, have to sort of cooperate when an avalanche 
traps them. And then lastly, uh, really, really good trash, Committed. Committed is uh, cheesy, and it's got way too many really bad hairstyles, but it's, uh, it's one of those uh, early 90s uh, kind of uh, mid-level schlock movies that somehow just works because everything is so cheesy, and uh, everybody takes it so seriously, and it's just so absolutely ridiculous. It's about a nurse who um, uh, is uh, deceived into getting herself committed into a mental institution, and uh, winds up basically being the only sane person there, and you know, fill in the blanks. It it winds up almost being comical. So, uh, good times, good times with the DVDR stuff, the MOD manufacture on demand world, which hopefully we'll be able to uh, cover a little bit more in the future. Wait in the basement is a movie. It's a documentary. We're talking about docs now, by the way, folks. Well, documentaries are movies. Movies are movies are docs. Docs are movies. Um, this is a really creepy, but oddly. Uh, mesmerizing little documentary about these people who have these basements and they deck them out and all this crazy stuff that like services their 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 hobbies and a lot of times their fetishes and you know it's just you meet the weirdest people there's this guy who loves Hitler and he has a band like a brass band and uh, there's uh it's just a lot of curiosities in here. You, the people who love like ornate bathrooms and they paint them red, and it's just it's just really crazy people. And it really makes you you know, you know what's funny is that when you when you read these horrible stories about about uh, almost like the the real life room where you read about these people who these horrible poor people who've been kidnapped and they were held in a basement for 17 years, like that guy in, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. Germany or Norway, wherever that was, yeah. or what, or pretty much the, the real version of room. room. Sure. You think to yourself, what is going on in the basements of America? What is happening behind these closed doors? You really start to wonder between room and something like in the basement, you really get to realize that we're horrible people. <laughs> we're we just horrible, twisted people. You know, the uh, I mentioned last week when I was listening to uh, Pat Oswalt driving into uh, to, to, to radio at KPCC, and, you know, he even <laughs> mentioned that in part of his routine where he talks about this is the kind of thing that, you know, you would you would say to a to a woman that you have in a pit in your basement, uh, <laughs> you know, where you're lowering down like water. Like Silence of the Lambs. Water. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's it, truly, it's, um, it's kind of sick and twisted, the fact that that just goes on. It's not just something that happens once or twice or three times. It seems to happen all the time. There are, I mean, you wonder, okay, we find out about these things whenever somebody escapes or whenever one of them is revealed. Honestly, how many people are there in America? Right now. Who, right now who are being held in, in, in human slavery in some kind of a dungeon or in some kind of a lockdown house, creepy house, or in a backyard where there's some kind of a bunker. I mean, how many of these are there? There's got to be at least a dozen. You figure somewhere in a, in a country of 300 million people. Way too many, bottom line. Well, so, one is way too many, but you, you got to figure. But who are, And who are the neighbors who, who are just like, yeah, those people are kind of weird, and they're just not paying attention? Like, seriously, like that whole thing in Cleveland? That that, that, I know. That, that that Castro guy, like, yeah, dude, seriously, that was on a busy street. The windows were all boarded up. What were the neighbors thinking? Did you not think that something kind of creepy going on in there? How did you remember that guy's name? Because it was Castro. How do you forget that? I did. It's not like it's it's not, it's not an unusual name. There's a famous dictator with the same last name. Obama. 
Oh, I got political there, and now I'm going to get letters, even though I was just going for the easy joke. Anyway, in the basement, it's it's fascinating, twisted stuff. So here is the documentary that is uh, widely considered the front runner for the Oscar and the the, the big deal, is uh, The Look of Silence by Joshua Oppenheimer. Um, This is a great movie. Great. Loved it. Blu-ray from Draft House. Heartbreaking. Uh, Yeah, it is. Um, and of course, the uh, this is kind of his follow up to the Oscar nominated The Act of Killing, which is why they're likely to give him the Oscar because The Act of Killing did not win the Oscar. Uh, this, of course, deals in the same subject matter, which is the 1965 uh, Indonesian genocide. And whereas the uh, the previous film was very much about the um, uh, the the perpetrators, this one kind of focuses on the victims. And it's a very different film. It's very differently put together. Uh, I think this is, in most respects, a better film. My only problem with Oppenheimer's films is that he he doesn't quite get the Indonesian history right. And he doesn't try to, which I think is unfortunate, and he contends that it's sort of irrelevant. But I, you know, I'm, I know a little bit about all that stuff because I'm a huge fan of The Year of Living Dangerously and that whole that whole period so I uh, it matters to me a little bit more but that being said it is a profoundly humanistic and touching film it is uh, it is very difficult to watch but it is uh, he's a he's a fine filmmaker and he's uh, he's put together two amazing films that really together stand as kind of the epic uh, delineation of that particular period I don't think they should be the final word but they um, they definitely are conversation starters and I think uh, that's that's worth everything so uh, the Look of Silence is a uh, quite a superb film and uh, produced by two guys who should know, uh, Werner Herzog and Errol Morris, we should point out. They slapped their names on this thing to give it a little extra push, and uh, bravo, well done. So uh, that is a, a great Blu-ray from Draft House, and a good-looking Blu-ray, I should add, too. I mean, really, really, you know, docs often don't try hard enough, but that one's, that one's quite nice. And uh, then a couple others here uh, that I'll go through right quickly. Hate Crimes in the Heartland, as long as we're on uplifting and, uh, and happy subject matter. Uh, Hate Crimes in the Heartland is, is a musical. It's, it's heartwarming and wonderful and lovely. No, not at all. Uh, this, is, uh, this basically goes to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and focuses on two separate hate crimes that are divided by almost 100 years and uh, the, it sort of compares them and contrasts them and, and looks at the, um, you know, the history that connects them. It's, um, it, and, and, you know, really kind of goes to the root of what, what is going on in other communities that have similar problems and similar issues. Uh, directed by Rachel Lyon, it is a very, very ambitious film. It, uh, it has a premise, obviously, that it requires a lot of work to actually make that connection to, to make it stick, you know, she's making a case that is uh, that is pretty elaborate, and um, she does a good job. It's a very very fine film, so I, I like that she aimed high and uh, and quite nearly achieves everything that she shoots for. And then turn toward the sun is more uplifting. Uh, this is a uh, this is the about the extraordinary life, as it says uh, in the tagline, the extraordinary life of Michael Byrne, M.C. The, if you don't know who Michael Byrne was, Michael Byrne um, was a writer, uh, a poet, a, a really remarkable kind of laureate figure in, uh, in Britain. And um, he, he uh, came from a really interesting line. Uh, his father had worked, for the, uh, had worked in uh, Buckingham Palace, and uh, he wound up being a... Uh, I don't want to give anything away, but he wound up having some interesting private... His private life uh, became a bit of a Cold War sensation as well, and um, 
he he wound up having just really a, a bizarre kind of spy life in many respects. I mean, it 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 his what he did in World War II and thereafter, and uh, he even wound up saving a very famous actress's life. And I and I and I won't say anything else because all of these are twists and turns that are just extraordinary. And you would have no idea that this this strange guy intersected with so many this just you know a talented but very unusual figure intersected with so many great. Uh, historical events and people. So uh, that is called Turned Toward the Sun, The Extraordinary Life of Michael Byrne, MC. And MC doesn't mean he's a rapper, by the way. I just wanted to. Yo, yo, yo. Yeah. Uh, from PBS, Iwo Jima from Combat to Comrades. I was really taken by this wonderful documentary where it, uh, it takes uh, veterans from both sides, the American and the Japanese side, and they send them back to Iwo Jima to sort of have a reunion. In fact, they start, wind up calling it, I think, a, a reunion of honor, what they wind up calling it. But uh, there's a U.S. documentary crew following around uh, three survivors. There's a Japanese crew documenting, uh, docu- documenting um, the only actually Japanese survivor able to make the trip to, uh, to Iwo Jima. And so, you know, it's this amazing time capsule, 1945, and, you know, there were one of, there was like 90,000 people who fought in Iwo Jima for X number of weeks, and it was just harrowing for all of them. And now they're sort of, you know, 60 years, whatever it is later, they're now, you know, reconvening, reuniting at the place where it all happened. And it's just very poignant and very emotional, and it's a very powerful documentary. Iwo Jima from Combat to Comrades. It just really, it really uh, goes to show you that when, a lot of times when the, when when uh, both sides go together, come together for war, it's just these average folks who really have nothing against each other. The average Japanese soldier had nothing against no. John Q. American soldier, and John Q. American soldier had nothing against uh, the Japanese soldier. But this is what we're at war, and this is what their uh, officer, superior officer, told them to do. So they're going to do it because they don't want to die. But uh, there's no reason why they can't get together and 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 break bread. It's fantastic. And uh, two, also from PBS, two great frontline docs. Uh, I don't know that there's ever been a bad frontline doc. These people just bat a thousand every single time. Uh, one of them is inside Assad's Syria, which is, you know, for the life of me, I, the thing that's the only thing that's more incredible than than how good these things are, is how quickly they put them together. Especially when the subject matter is just so relevant, so right now. It's like. You know, something happens uh, 48 hours ago, and then two days from now, there's like this feature-length frontline documentary that's just, how do you even come, I mean, I don't understand how you even shot that in that period of time. Because they caused it to happen. There you see, that's it. So they were producing the documentary as they were causing the events to happen. That's it. That's it. Well, anyway... Um, the we're all familiar, obviously, with the events going on right now in uh, in Syria and Iraq. It's on the news every day, uh, and uh, the everything that everything that the, that we read about in the news is kind of put under a spotlight in this hour long frontline doc inside Assad Syria, which is chilling and heartbreaking and disturbing, and uh, does not make you feel better uh, in any way whatsoever. But it is illuminating. It will make you more intelligent in conversations. Um, so don't don't read all your clickbait. Read like watch a doc like this, and you will be more informed. Um, the other one is my brother's bomber, another front line. This one obviously they had more time to put together. Uh, this deals with a um, basically the guy who made this, Ken Dornstein, um, was uh, he lost his brother in the Lockerbie bombing, the Lockerbie seven, uh, Pan Am seven forty seven uh, bombing crash. 
uh, over Lockerbie, Scotland. And um, the, um, he's never been able to let it go. So this is a, uh, a rather extraordinary three-hour-long frontline documentary uh, about his, his investigation into uh, the crash that killed his brother and what happened and who did it and, uh, and how he pieces this mystery together. And, you know, the fact that it is from and the brother of a survivor makes it, yes, it's, it's certainly a very personal point of view, but he's so dogged and so determined and so unrelenting um, that it, it just it drags you into it, and uh, it, it starts to feel not even like a dog. It starts to feel like a great, you know, like a great uh, John Le Carre novel or something. It really is just incredible. Despite the length, it just moves like gangbusters. It's just beautiful. So, my brother's bomber, really one of the best uh, things that Frontline has shown, I think, perhaps ever. It's really, really first rate. And then uh, the last one from PBS is a Cyber War Threat, Navigating the New and Deadly Digital Battlefield. This is a Nova uh, episode that's about an hour long. Um, it, it, it gets very technical and kind of lost me at a certain point, but um, it definitely makes you a little bit afraid of what's going on on the Internet, and it makes you just want to throw your computer out and go full Luddite and just live in your parents' basement and really not have any uh, internet connection to the world. And then that lasts until somebody texts you a picture of their butt, and then you immediately forget about the cyber warfare. <laughs> I like butt texts. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, but it's, it is worth, uh, it's worth checking out. A lot of you will have more technical uh, know-how, and you'll understand a lot of the nuances of this better. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of chilling. I hope it doesn't come to pass, but it certainly seems to. You know, for the uh, doctor in your family or somebody who's maybe going through some uh, medical issues, uh, interesting documentary called Making Rounds. This is directed by uh, Muffy Meyer. Name really Muffy. That's just terrible. That sounds so like Upper East Side. Uh, anyway, a director of, uh, co-director of Great Gardens and New Medicine. Very interesting documentary. Very illuminating. It's about uh, the lost art of uh, the bedside manner, the lost art of doctors, just like back in the day where they would literally – they would diagnose you based on one thing, which is coming into your coming into your hospital room and listening to the patient. What is the issue? They don't just throw you on a machine. They don't just run you through like a mill. And in order to uh, prove that point, the director profiles these two cardiologists at Mount Sinai Hospital uh, over a month period, and you see them in the uh, the cardiac care unit, and they just. They make their rounds, and they talk to the patient. They get a sense of what they're like. They put their gloves on, and they, they sort of, you know, they uh, give it the personal touch. And it's very refreshing, and it really, it's, you know, obviously today medical advancements are amazing, so I wouldn't necessarily want people to be diagnosed just based on the doctor putting on gloves and touching your throat. But there is something to be said about these doctors who don't treat the medical profession like just a mill like my primary care physician does, just saying, uh, where just like you've got six minutes and you're in and you're out. These guys are caring doctors. They're good doctors. They're at, the, they're at Mount Sinai. And this documentary, Making Rounds, really makes you long for the days when the human touch was just the most important thing in diagnosing a patient. So it has limited appeal, but uh, if you're into it, you really enjoy Making Rounds. Uh, if you're into uh, if you're into prison escapes and anime, you will want to check out uh, One Piece season seven, Voyage Four. This thing just keeps on going with its wild and crazy animation and its fantastical, phantasmagorical, and psychedelic stories. I uh, you know I've never tried to really understand this world. You got characters named you know uh, freaking Monkey and 
rubber man and buggy the clown i it, it it just it is what it is and it's a crazy crazy thing but it's popular and it's not on blu-ray it's only on dvd never understood that anyway uh one piece season seven voyage four is out um a few other anime things before we close the show out fairy tale uh, volume 18 is also out. That's another hugely, hugely popular um, series from uh, Funimation. Uh, th- this is actually a lot more accessible. I don't quite understand this world either. The, the politics of it is very, very confusing to me, but it's, uh, it's fantastic animation. Really, really great. And uh, there's some especially really cool stuff here. I, I scanned this rather quickly and just marveled at the animation. Didn't even matter what the stories were. Uh, we've got, so the, the, if, you're, if you're a Gundam fan... We got a ton of Gundam. Isn't that a, isn't that, you like how that sounds? Ton of Gundam. Ton of gum? Ton of Gundam. Uh, I got here Gundam uh, Earthlight and Moon Butterfly. Uh, this is from uh, Turn of Gundam the Movies. Uh, fantastic animation. Uh, also got a Gundam movie trilogy. This is Mobile Suit Gundam, uh, which is, feels very transformery. Uh, this is the uh, this is this is from uh, the Right Stuff uh, anime company. Right Stuff, one of the uh, premier distributors of uh, of anime, and then uh, the the coolest one here is Mobile Suit Gundam Collection Two, which is on Blu-ray. And uh, this is classic. Anytime classic anime winds up on Blu-ray, I, I I always try to take a take a peek because you know classic anime is very it's very elegant, but it's very rough. And uh, you always want to see what the, uh, what the Blu-ray, what the high def reveals in it. And what it reveals is that these guys just work their butts off to make this stuff look cool. So you really do start to see, as, as our friend and colleague Ray Green often says, you start to see the fingerprints. And that's what he wants to see. It's like when you watch Wallace and Gromit, you know, you actually see the fingerprints in the clay. And, uh, and there's something really kind of uh, cool and organic and reassuring about that. You know, you, you start to really appreciate the effort much more than you do with something that's entirely... Uh, computer generated anyway uh, but this is really terrific so these are all new transfers from original 35 millimeter and it shows it is just beautiful it is classic anime it is wonderful that's Mobile Suit Gundam Collection 2 and uh, then let's see a lovely set here this is uh, Sailor Moon for those who have who enjoy the whole little girl fetishistic thing that goes on uh, Sailor Moon is is kind of for pervy old man in many respects. This is a six six uh, six disc set, the complete Sailor Moon season two, and it's Blu-ray and DVD. This is from Viz, and um, you know she's she's blonde and she wears that cute little outfit with the blue mini skirt. I don't understand the whole Sailor Moon thing. The, I don't the, understand the fetish. The, the I don't red, understand the appeal. The red boots. It's the it's all about the red boots. The well, red, uh, red knee boots, high boots. Red boot, Red knee high boots are sexy. I get it. Yeah. But there's like you know, look, I I've been to Japan. Yeah. I'm telling you, those people are nuts. Sailor Moon is everywhere. Over nuts. There, by the way. Yeah. And so is Hello Kitty. She's great. She's fantastic. Dave tons of tons of extras here. I mean, you get behind the scenes on how they how they dub it and how they do the songs and there's cast interviews and it's a, this thing's really really loaded up. So for a single for a, a single season Blu-ray and DVD set, this thing is really really quite loaded. Uh, but this is Sailor actually I should say Sailor Moon R. It's a you know there are several Sailor Moon series. So this is season two of Sailor Moon R. You know I'm not I'm not R that, R, his, R stands for Rubenesque. Yeah. she's a fat Sailor Moon. Yeah. If you're into that kind of thing. And quickly wrapping this out, uh, Riddle, Story of Devil, uh, Akumba, No Riddle. This is another Funimation set. Uh, as very often is the case with these things, I, I, I try to sort of get uh, caught up, and I, I, yeah, I just can't. 
It, this is based on a manga that's apparently very, very popular. Uh, Riddle Story of Devil it deals with female assassins in a boarding school and uh, this weird kind of, uh, you know, uh, murder game. Um, but there's there's obviously more going on here, and I didn't read. I've never read the manga, and I'm not about to. But it's uh, it's not as exploitative as you might necessarily think. It actually it's got something on its mind. And uh, then let's see real quickly uh, the Prince. Uh, no, let's hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip that, and I'm gonna go. We only got time for one more here. Let's go with uh, the complete collection, Majestic Prince. This is 24 episodes on four discs from the. Uh, Sente line of uh, Section 23, and uh, this is just a, a really cool kind of futuristic alien attack defending the Earth kind of thing. It's in the vein of all those great sci-fi series like Star Blazers and, and many other fine jet anime series. A lot more accessible because these things just... It, it's great. It's, it, it's kind of in the, in the world of Star Wars, and uh, anime does that really, really well. Uh, so, you know, check it out. The, uh, this complete collection of Majestic Prince Cool artwork, uh, really cool animation, a lot of fun, and you don't have to kind of read entire volumes on the, uh, the politics of any particular anime world to really get into it. So Very important. Very, very important. Because my time is valuable, Wade. I, honestly, some of, those, some of those anime sagas, I don't know how you even start. And it, it just, it's, like the, they, these, it's like Lord of the Rings, these huge elaborate worlds with so much backstory. And I just, I what can't. do you think about Avatar 2 being uh, delayed? Aren't you kind of happy? Yeah, they, they blinked. <laughs> they, they blink. They don't want to go up against Star Wars, which pretty much tells you they know that Avatar has faded from the uh, the, the, the pop culture consciousness. It was never in the... It's just it's, it's bizarre it, it's, how it, that movie is the highest grossing film of all time and nobody cares. It's not going to be for very long. Nobody wears Avatar. Can, no. you, can you even name a character in that movie? No. I, it, no nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's nobody just, cares. <laughs> I it's think totally it, bizarre. And I think it's even I think what's even scarier is that it's got um, you know, they're gonna do two three movies back to back to back. So they're gonna get Avatar two, three, and four. If Avatar two comes out and winds up basically being a gigantic egg, if it just sits and lays there and, and people are like, Oh my gosh, what's what's you know, this is just if it just winds up tanking so horribly, what's twentieth century Century Fox gonna do? They've got two more that they have to release and to stay on good terms with James Cameron. That means you are not just, I mean, you've, yes, you've spent your production money, but that means you've got a quarter of a million in marketing that you are going to flush down the toilet to try to, to boost a couple of films that nobody wants to see. That is correct. Well, I, I can't see it. Well, Avatar 2 won't bomb, but Avatar 3 will bomb if Avatar 2 saying. sucks. There you go. Anyway, well, that's it. We'll see you guys next week. 